All right, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. We'll see the power of the gospel to transform here in a nutshell, and then we'll go back to chapter 1 and look at the first 15 verses that Paul's introduction to it and see the plan of the gospel, past, present, and future. Chapter 12, verse 1 says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. So let me just show you this. This is common. Whenever you see the word therefore in the Bible, it's there for a reason. That's no pun intended at all. I meant that totally. It's there for a reason. You've got to ask yourself. And usually it's used because of what was said previously leading to some conclusion that's coming from it. In this case, most theologians, most pastors, most people, students of the Bible realize that it just wasn't the few verses right before this, but it was the whole book prior to this. Paul has a huge pivot point at this place in the book. And he's saying, therefore, my brothers and sisters or Christians, because of what I've just taught you in chapters 1 through 11, he's going to urge them towards something. Okay? He says, therefore, by the mercies of God, and that's what chapters 1 and through 11 are all about, the mercies of God's salvation, he says, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And then he tells us how we can do that in a, in a twofold kind of a contrastive command. He says, first, do not be conformed to this world. Meaning when we're conformed to this world, we're not offering ourselves as a living sacrifice. We're not being changed. He says, but instead, be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Okay, so here's my point. If you were to put all that together in one simple statement, here's how I would summarize that, and this is your first point in your notes, is I will worship or I worship God when my mind is transformed, resulting in obedience to his word. And so we worship when our mind is transformed, he says, by them. When we take these truths and we put them into our hearts and we submit ourselves to them, it begins to change us. And as we do that, we are worshiping. We do this, as Paul says, when we allow him to transform our minds and our wills. That's how he describes it. Don't be conformed. Don't let your mind be conformed to the ways of this world, but let it be transformed by the renewing of your mind and making what God says is true and right acceptable or good. Now, I'm going to explain this a little bit because that passage in the English can be a little bit uh, confusing. So let me give you a couple things that are important to understand. The term Paul uses here for your mind, the renewal of your mind, is more than just uh, what we would say is our, the mental part of the mind today. They didn't think of the mind in the same way that we think of it today. We might think of it more as the heart. And I don't mean the heart like the physical heart, but the heart of who we are as people. When Paul uses the term mind here, he doesn't mean just what we know. He means our attitude, our disposition towards what we know, or better yet, whom we know. Okay, let me describe the difference a little bit to you, because we tend to think in our modern day that just, if we can just get something into a person's mind, that they'll be changed. Right? We say knowledge is power. If we could just educate people, we could, you know, get them to behave differently. But we don't realize, in fact, we'll see this in the book of Romans, some of the most educated and smart people in the history of the world were some of the most wicked people to ever live on the earth. Do you realize the Nazi regime under Hitler? Hitler was a genius, if you measured his IQ. A lot of the people around him were phenomenally intelligent, highly educated. 
and yet look what they are capable of. That's not what Paul is saying here. If we can just educate people, they'll be different. He's saying a transformation has to take place in our mind that causes us to have a different attitude toward this knowledge or towards, in particular, God. Here's a simple illustration. Say, uh, you're... If you're going to drive to San Antonio, most people know that if you get on the freeway and start heading to San Antonio, you know in your mind you have the intellectual knowledge that the speed limit is 75 miles per hour, right? You know where I'm going to go with this, don't you? You're already convicted. See, that's all we got to do. We can pray right now. We're done. You realize, man, God, I'm a mess. I'm not even past the introduction of the message, and I'm already convicted. Yeah, I know where he's going. We know that, right? But knowing it is not enough. You need to have a certain attitude in your mind about the speed limit that says something like this. That this highway is, is about more than just me. I know that's probably news to you. You think that we paved that whole highway just for you to get to San Antonio as quickly as you could and everyone else is just, you know, on your road. But, but that's what that truth does. It's saying, hey, this is what we feel is best for the community at large. You may want to go faster. Someone else may want to go faster. But we feel what's safest for the community as a whole is that we travel at this speeds and it keeps everyone in a somewhat safe possibility. That's a different attitude toward that law. We do the same thing with God's law. Oh, pfft, that worked great for them back then, but, you know, we're so much more advanced. Or cer Certain people, they need to submit to these principles, but we're, you know, smarter than that. Okay, we know it, but we don't have the attitude to properly relate to it. That's what Paul is talking about here. And as we go through this book, as we go through these 11 chapters, that's what Paul is saying is that we need to have a renewed mind. Our greatest problem is that we think we know better than God. We all do, no matter how long you've been in the church. Even me as a pastor, even though I know this Bible pretty well, there's still a whole lot of things on a daily basis that I can go, oh man, I'm so far from what this truth says. My, I still wrestle in my own flesh against these things, and I have to submit to it day by day by day, just as all of you do and we will as long as we're in these fallen bodies so that's what Paul's talking about and then he says that the outcome of that or the result of it he says at the end is that by testing you may discern what is the will of God what is good and acceptable and perfect that's kind of a obscure phrase that doesn't come out in English the way it's really explained in the Greek it says that by testing you may discern it's using two different verbs there testing and discern in the Greek there's just one word there and they're trying to capture it. And, and the, the word actually means to authenticate. Okay, that when you, when you allow your mind to be transformed and you accept not only God's truth, but the attitude towards it, then what happens is your life will authenticate that God's will, what you're submitting to, is good, is right, is perfect. That make sense? It's not that you're making it right. It's that when you accept it and you live by it, you're going to go, wow, God, you, I was a struggle for me, and I know it took some humility for me to submit to that, and I wanted to do it my own way rather than your way, but I'm going to do it your way. And then in time, you're going to realize, you know what? You are right. You are good, and you are perfect. And that's a transformed life. That's a life of worship. You don't worship until this takes place. 
simply showing up here on Sunday and singing some songs. You can go through everything that we do here on a Sunday, even go to a small group, and never worship God. Because you can walk out of here with the exact same attitude toward God and toward his truth that you came in here with. And the only way you truly worship is for him to transform you and for you to walk out saying, God, you were right and I was wrong. Say that with me once. God, you were right and I was wrong. That's worship right there. It's pretty easy. Try saying that with your spouse sometime. (laughs) That's even harder than with God, isn't it? I'm just kidding. I just threw that in there. But. Okay, so that's, that's what this passage means. So here's a question I want to ask for each of us. As we begin this journey, I want to answer this before we jump into the first chapter of the book. Is your life a living sacrifice of worship to God? Don't, just, you don't have to answer this. This is rhetorical. Just think about it. As we begin this journey, you don't have to tell anyone else. I just want you to have an honest conversation with yourself right now. Would you say that your life is a living sacrifice of worship to God, meaning that there are things in your attitude and in your thoughts that are, are being transformed to God's will in his word rather than staying under your own control. Here's another follow-up. Do you see a pattern of transforming obedience in your life? Meaning, are you any different today because of your worship than you were a year ago or five years ago or ten years ago, as you reflect on your life, however long you've been a believer or a worshiper of God, do you see your life being transformed by obedience, into obedience to God's word? As your mind has changed, as your attitude has changed, I'm not talking about outward things where you say, well, yeah, Chad, I never used to go to church, now I'm going to church. Okay, that's a good change, but if your attitude is still, but I wish I was at home watching the game, but I wish I was going, you know, I should be doing a carne asada, but you know, my spouse drags me here every Sunday, but at least I'm going. You need to understand you're no better off than you were beforehand. At least now you're hearing the truth, but my question is, is your mind, is your attitude being changed or transformed at all? That's our desire in this journey. That's what Paul says this book is all about and these truths that he's going to teach us about God over the next several weeks. I want to share with you a little testimony. It was kind of timely. This came in, actually it was sent to Pastor Adrian in response to a message he gave in the Wise Up series last fall. And I thought, how cool, this came in uh, this week and it just fits perfectly in with what we're talking about. So I'd ask permission, said, hey, would you contact him and, and ask if I could share that testimony? It's just a beautiful picture of what we're talking about. And they gave permission, so I'm going to share it. So this came into Adrian. He, if you remember in the Wise Up series, the latter part we spoke on uh, being wise with our possessions and how we relate to them. And Adrian gave a message about uh, honoring God first with our possessions, acknowledging him as the owner and us being stewards. And so the challenge he gave at the end of that is he said, for 90 days, I want to challenge you, if you've never honored God with the first part of your uh, resources, I want to challenge you to try it for 90 days. And test it out. Kind of what Paul's saying here. See if God's really true about what he says about uh, him being the owner and our attitude towards it. And here is her testimony in response to that. She said, just wanted to say thank you for sharing the 90-day challenge. It's about 90 days from when he gave that. I've learned and have been humbled greatly. I'm in awe of God's love and care for me and my family. 
the weight of me trying to keep my family financially stable in my own strength is slowly drifting off. I'm feeling a freedom that I've never felt before in regards to money. God is surely leading me in becoming a good steward of my finances. I'm beginning to trust God more each day. Still learning, got a long way to go, but I'm further than where I started. You know what's cool about that testimony? And she may not even have realized it as she shared it, is that it captures exactly what we see in this passage about being transformed. She didn't just legalistically go through some action. Did you notice the attitude, transformation of trust, of not worrying? There is a, a change that was taking place in her, both intellectually and attitudinally, as she related to her money by trusting God in that process. And that's what Paul is talking about here in terms of transformation. So that's the big picture. That's the heart of this series. And we're always going to ask those questions as we go through it. But as we jump into it, here's what I want you to understand. You're going to be confronted over the next several months with some of the most difficult truths you're ever going to come across. They are going to rub up and down all over your human flesh and your mindset and your pride and how you think of yourself and how you think about people and how you think of the world uh, like no other book you're ever going to come across. And you're going to have to make a choice every single time. Is it my way or is it God's way? Am I right or is he right? Because Paul is going to get into the very depths and the foundations of who we are as Christians and what God's done for us through Jesus Christ. So my prayer will be throughout the series for our church and for myself. I'm going to be in this journey as well. As much as I've read and studied this book, every time you go through it, there are more things you're confronted with. My prayer is that we would become living sacrifices, just as Paul said, because our minds would be changed and transformed. And as a result, our lives would authenticate that everything God says is true, is right, and is good. So let's get into the book and see how Paul introduces it as he speaks to the church or writes to the church in Rome and starts this journey. So I'm going to, again, cover this from a big picture, but here's where we get into the plan of the gospel. Paul talked about the power of the gospel in chapter 12 here, but I want to show you the plan of it and and how it captures that. So here's my first point for you, and then we'll read the introduction. Uh, Here's my point. We were part of God's plan in the past to proclaim his gospel among all nations. But I want you to see in this passage that even back here, 2,000 years ago, when this letter was written and this church was in existence, that we were part of that plan, that God was thinking about us and was working out his plan even way back in the past. In fact, we're going to see that it goes back even further than here, that God has had a plan throughout all history, even as we sung in one of our songs today. So Paul pens these words, and he says this in his introduction. He says, Paul a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand, there we see it going even further back, through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So he's talking about the Old Testament. The gospel isn't new when Jesus came on the scene. It's just further revealed. That this gospel is concerning his son, who is descended from David according to the flesh. So it's talking about the human side of Jesus, that he was born as a descendant of David, 
and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. There is his deity. So he was this miraculous combination of humanity and deity and God in one. Through whom, it says, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of the faith. So Paul is introducing himself as one of the apostles, the early apostles of the church, and he's saying it's through Jesus that we received our grace and we're given our position as apostles to bring about the obedience of the faith for the sake of his name among all nations, including you, he's saying. Now he's talking to the Roman church particularly, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. So here's what's amazing about that. So much we could get into, but, but God's gospel, as we see here in his plan, started in the past, but it, but it illustrates it even in the life of Paul. We don't think of this oftentimes because we sit down with our Bibles and we tend to disassociate ourselves from all of what happened to even have this in our hands today. We, we have this mindset, even though we don't know, think this, this is kind of how we approach it, that the Bible just like floated down from heaven all complete, and boom, here it is. I'm going to read it today. Oh, God, you spoke that just for me. We're so individualistic, and we don't step back and see, well, yes, he did speak it for you, but he's spoken it for his people all throughout time. And it came about in time, even though he knew about it from eternity past. So here's Paul. Just, just the beginning of this book should make you go, what? Paul? You're talking Paul? Paul's writing this? Paul's set aside for the gospel? He's an apostle, a unique sent one from Jesus Christ himself? Do we not know who Paul is? Formerly known as Saul? You can read about him in Acts chapter 8 and chapter 9. Do you know what he was responsible for? Paul was responsible for the first Christian martyr. The first Christian who ever died for his faith, at least that we have recorded, Stephen, Paul was there orchestrating it. In chapter 9, he got more authority to go and travel all around the known world to persecute more Christians and to squelch out this religion. Paul, who was a Pharisee, who probably had memorized more of the Bible than any of you guys have ever memorized in your life. In fact, he probably had more memorized than all of us combined together. They would have to memorize whole books of the Bible. He was one of the most religious people that ever walked the earth. Proof that simply having stuff in your mind is not worship. But on that path of destruction that Paul was walking, he was met by the person of Jesus Christ. And it was so transforming in his life. His life was never the same again. So I mean, just the start of this book, a book all about transformation, how awesome that God used one of those that he transformed more than anyone. Paul was a murderer. And not just a random murderer. We often think, oh, you know, these guys that are drug lords or whatever, and they murder other drug men. We, we tend to, in our heads, I'm not saying it's right, but this is what we do. We tend to think, it's just, a, you know, those guys are all evil anyways. Let them kill themselves. Come on, that's honestly, that's what we often say in our heads. But Paul wasn't killing those kinds of people. 
Paul was killing some of the kindest, most gentle, most loving people in the world. And God came into his life and totally transformed him. And not just transformed him, he used him and set him apart to write a majority of the New Testament that we have here today. Church, that's what we're talking about. Transformation, a God who changes people so that no matter where you are at right now, murder, drug addict, adulterer, theft, God can change your life and even use you powerfully to carry the good news of the gospel. He didn't just start with us. He didn't just start with a book. He was illustrating all these things throughout history and showing his power even through Paul. I love how Paul describes himself in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You don't have to go there, but I'll read it to you. In 15, uh, 1 Corinthians 15 verses 8 and 9, or 9 and 10, excuse me, he says this. This is Paul self-describing himself. He says, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, why, he says, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Popeye stole that phrase from him, by the way. <laughs> but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Yeah, only you older people that saw that cartoon, you dated yourselves. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I but the grace of God that is with me. Paul was changed. Paul was transformed. And now the one who was persecuting the church and killing Christians is being set apart and used mightily by God to transform them. See, God's gospel, even in here, was promised beforehand, he says, through his prophets in the Holy Scripture. So his plan exceeded or, or preceded Paul even. God knew it was going to come about. It wasn't some plan B. God didn't get there into the New Testament and go, oh, man, New Testament times. And I did these Ten Commandments. I really spent a lot of time writing those. I thought about every single thing I was going to say. I really thought that that was going to change people back then. But it just doesn't seem to be working. We've got to come up with something better, guys. That's not what God was doing. Even during that time, he was proclaiming the gospel through his relationship with Abraham. A one-sided covenant based on God's faithfulness, not Abraham's. Through the exodus, through a lamb that was sacrificed, and the blood of that lamb being put over the doorpost. And anyone who would put that blood over their doorpost would be passed over by the angel of death that God would save those who believed in him through that blood. All through the Old Testament, God is proclaiming the gospel that was going to become and fulfilled in Jesus Christ, but had been known before that time. It was not an accident, nor was it for any given single time. And now here we are, 2,000 years later, part of a church that began here. See, through Jesus Christ, Paul said, we receive grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of the faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. 
It wasn't just for the Jewish people. Jesus was Jewish. He grew up in a Jewish family. He ministered primarily there. But his message, the gospel, was for all people. We don't often even think of that. If they wouldn't have obeyed what God had called them to and God hadn't called and given the grace for his people, his apostles, to leave and spread that gospel, we might not have ever heard it today. How many of you people in here have been to Jerusalem? Exactly. So either we would have to have gotten there to hear the good news or that good news would have to travel out of there to where we are today. And the fact that there's a church here today, that there are people who have trusted in Jesus and have heard the good news and been transformed is because this gospel and this plan was in place long before you and I ever breathed our first breath. You see, we were part of God's plan in the past to proclaim the gospel to all nations so that you and I, most of us being non-Jewish people, could be part of God's family. The passage goes on and Paul gets a little more personal in addressing the Romans in particular. And so here's my point for you, my second point, and then we'll read the passages. We are part of God's present and future plan to proclaim his gospel of transformation in our city. We are part of God's present and future plan to proclaim God's gospel of transformation in our city. Here's how Paul writes to him. He says, to all those in Rome. So he's introducing them. Remember, this is a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Rome. Just like we would receive a letter, he's writing them, he's putting a heading, he's putting a greeting on to it. He says, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says this, says, first I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Why? He says, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. So Paul had longed to go to the, the Roman church, because it was a, primarily a Gentile church. That was one of his callings, one of his longings. He tried multiple times and just hadn't been able to for any number of reasons that the scriptures give us. And so he's writing this letter in lieu of that, sending it to him, hoping that he can get there so that part of his ministry, as God said, was to go to the Gentiles and teach them and, f- f- uh, in a sense, fill up their truth about the gospel. Most likely this church started uh, from the handful of people that were at Pentecost. You can read about in Acts chapter 2 when Peter gave his first sermon after the Holy Spirit came. It talked about all the people that were gathered there, all the Jewish people that were gathered from all the different nations, and some of them were from Rome. So they probably heard that during that time. They probably went back home, and it was just a few people that were sharing those truths at that time, and this church grew without any really of the apostles being part of it at that time. And so Paul's desire was to go there and to strengthen them and to grow them up in the truth. And so here he's going to write about it before he can actually visit them. But he talks about saying, I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. So Paul wanted to reap a harvest amongst them, meaning more people come to know this gospel and Jesus there, as well as the rest of the Gentiles, the 
you know, Jewish people in that region, he wanted to be able to share the gospel as well. And he says, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. It says, Paul desired to visit them, to strengthen them, and reap a further harvest amongst them. But here's what's amazing. If you read this letter, and even in place where Paul tried to go there, you get this sense, and, and I don't know this, I'm just assuming uh, from one perspective, you don't always know if the people who wrote these books in the Bible knew how significant what they were writing was going to be. Or even if they knew that what they were writing at that moment was inspired by God. Because they often wrote other letters and not all of them were included in the Bible. Some were. So Paul, when he sat down, we don't know that he went into some kind of trance. He wrote it, you know, wanting to teach them about God and the Holy Spirit empowered him and inspired him to do so. But it looks like from Paul's speech that he thought the writing of this letter and sending it to the Roman church was kind of second best. In a sense, what he's saying is that I've wanted to visit you guys for the longest time. I've tried multiple times. That's my heart. I want to be there with you and reap a harvest amongst you. But for some reason, I've just been prevented each time. So, in a sense, I'm going to write you a letter instead, hoping that one day I'll be able to get there. Now, that's Paul's mind. But look at what happened in God's greater plan. Paul penned one of the most prominent and significant letters in all of Christianity. A book in the truths and through these truths that transformed the church in Rome. And for 2,000 years, the church has been deeply impacted by the words that he wrote. Much more so than just his physical presence being there in Rome that could have helped them for that period he was there. He then was used by God to, to pen something that's impacted history throughout time. Do you realize that some of the most significant Christians in the history give credit to the book of Romans as being the most significant in their lives? St. Augustine in the 4th century, one of the early church fathers, credits Romans as being instrumental in his transformation. If you know his story, St. Augustine or Augustine was a pagan philosopher. He was a womanizer. He had illegitimate children and was running with the world and just a mess. But his mom was a devout believer in Jesus Christ. And as he climbed in success in his career and in the world's eyes, his mom got deeper and further down on her knees and pled with God for the conversion of her son. Went to the bishop at that time regularly and asked him to pray for her son. And one day, the story tells us, and Augustine's confessions reveal this, that he was walking in a park where some little kids were playing. And they were singing a song that had a refrain in it that in English says, pick up and read, pick up and read. And that song got stuck in his head. And as he was walking through the park, there happened to be a, a kind of a stand there. And there's a Bible that was actually changed to it. And that song and refrain just kind of rung in his head as he saw that Bible. And he went over and for the first time, he picked up a Bible and randomly opened it up. And it opened up to a passage in the book of Romans. And Augustine describes it as a light going off as he read those verses that spoke to specifically to the sin that was taking place in his life. 
and the damage it was causing. And he said his whole life was changed from that point on. And he went on to be one of the most significant influences in the church. In fact, many would say that he was the most significant and influential theologian of the first thousand years of Christianity. Martin Luther, the father of the Protestant Reformation, he was a monk. In fact, he became a monk, if you read any of his journals in his life, because he was so afraid of God. He had this fear from God, and he said, God, I can never please you. I feel like you're always there watching me. And so he thought, I'll commit myself my whole life to, to serving you if you'll just like, accept me. He had this view that he had to appease and please God, and so he became a monk to do so. And in one of his uh, preparations, he was getting ready to prepare and teach his students from the book of Romans. And as he was reading the book for himself and studying it for himself, God so clearly spoke to him about true righteousness, a righteousness, as we'll get to, that came from God and is available to you and I through the person of his son, that it transformed Martin Luther's life. And he recognized for the first time that the righteousness God offers is not a righteousness that we can earn but that's one that's offered through him. And he saw that in this book. And history shows how God used his life to revive a dead church during that time. John Wesley, a great revivalist, transformed by a message from the book of Romans. I could go on and on and on about the lives that have been totally changed by the truths revealed in this my prayer is that the same will happen even in our lives 2,000 years later. So how can we be a living sacrifice of worship? Why would God accept a living sacrifice for us when all of the Bible prior required a dead sacrifice? Someone else died in our place. Because part of what's taught us in this book is the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. That Jesus lived and died to substitute his life for you and for me. And when he stood at the edge in that final days that he was here on earth, and he prayed in that garden, knowing that the cross was coming, for the first time, he may have fully caught a glimpse of what it would cost him to redeem you and me. Jonathan Edwards writes in one of his sermons called Christ's Agony in referring to the time when Jesus was in the garden and it says his, his soul was grieved to the point of death that two things he said had to be rendered true of Christ's love for us to realize how great it was. The first was he said that he would be willing to suffer on our behalf. That's the first thing, but Edwards goes on to say, the second thing is that he would be fully aware of how great a suffering it would take to atone for us before he did so. That night, when Jesus prayed, he may have caught a glimpse of what it was going to cost him to redeem you and me like he'd never seen before. 
that God wasn't going to trick him into doing it. He had to be fully aware of the suffering that awaited him. Not just the beating and the dying on the cross, but the wrath of the Father poured out on him. And that night, the Father showed him. Church, I've, I've read the Gospels many, many times. I've studied Jesus' life. And you know, I can't find one instant anywhere in the Gospels where Jesus ever even stuttered when it came to obeying his Father's will. Not one. But in that garden, three times, he pleaded with his Father, if there's any other way, if there's any other way, if there is any other way, please take this cup. Jesus looked into the depths of hell. For the first time, he caught a glimpse of what it would mean to be separated from his father's love. And not just be separated from a love that he'd known for all eternity, but to experience the weight and the glory of his wrath on sin poured out on himself. And it shook him to every human part that he had. But he went anyway to show you and me the depth of his love. In church, no example in all of Scripture better proves what Paul penned in our passages today. That a transformed mind is one that fully accepts God's will is good and acceptable and right because Jesus at that moment saw the horror of God's wrath and the ugliness of sin and he had to take it all upon himself and trust that God was going to work it out the father and he submitted his desire to avoid suffering to the greater desire of God to do his perfect work. And we stand here today seeing the greater good, seeing the greater glory of what Jesus did for you and for me. So church, this series is about being transformed. The mercies of God, Paul says, are too great. The gospel of Jesus is too glorious. The person of Jesus is too sovereign and beautiful for us to come face to face with him and be anything other than transformed. So my prayer for you, my prayer for myself, my prayer for us, that as we go on this journey, may God continue to change and renew our minds with the beauties of this salvation, of this grace, that he's revealed to us through his word.